It's a beautiful that some people have organized for those who wish to have a meditation before the satsang. This makes you more capable to go into the spiritual understanding of things. Especially tonight, where I have been asked by some of the disciples in the school here to start some commentaries on the Kashmirian poetry, on the poetry of Abhinavagupta and other of the great masters, yogis of this tradition. There are, of course, huge problems with this, one of them being precisely the high level of consciousness which it requires, which it involves. And that's why I've been asked to analyze the poetry, to explain it almost strophe by strophe and word by word. What did they want to say? What did they want to point at? Um, I may think that this type of satsang, this type of speech, belongs not necessarily to the satsangs themselves, because this kind of reading and explanation is very difficult for the outside world. Kashmiri Shaivism, with great difficulty, with a field of understanding, with a special consecration, we offer it to people once a year, this year, it will come as well. And when we offer it, we are very cautious that people would not understand it the wrong way because it's very, very easy to get confused. Kashmiri Shaivism, as some of you know already, and some of you don't know all until this point, Kashmiri Shaivism is the top of all the tantric traditions of India, is the highest spiritual product, and we are blessed enough here in Agama to have this part in our teachings. There are various dimensions of the tantric tradition. It's one thing to speak about the sexual tantra, the tantra of the left hand. It's another thing to speak about the goddess tantra, the deity tantra, the Dasha Mahavidya, which is, uh, to a certain extent, a form of the Tantra of the right hand. It's another thing to speak about Kashmiri Shaivism, which is an altogether different ball game. And that's why, uh, when I was thinking, you know, I wanted to honor this request, which was done by the students, by some of the students of the school, on the other hand, when I see the questions which come in the Q&As and the request for satsangs, they are about how to deal with the world, how to have successful relationships, what's the story with the money, what do you do with the chakras, when you do, you know, Kashmiri Shaivism is like 20 floors above that level. And um, when I'm talking about Kashmiri Shaivism, trying to bring up Hinavagupta to the understanding of uh, the lecture. These are very, very exalted subjects for which many, many people are simply not interested. We might lose a lot of audience tonight, 
because in satsangs we usually try to speak about the things which are relevant for the people who want to come to yoga or for the people who are beginners in yoga. We don't talk in the satsangs about subjects which are interesting for the advanced students of Agama. The advanced students of Agama are a weird flock of people who have a world of their own. They live in their own spiritual trip. And um, because of that, it's difficult sometimes to reconcile these worlds uh, in a proper way. And uh, again, I'm saying... I'm saying this to warn the people who see us for the first time or who have seen Agama two, three, four times that in, a, in Agama our yoga is very pragmatical. No? Like if you do sexual tantra as a man, we don't know if you will become like Abhinavagupta. It's not mine to decide and I cannot, again, determine the outcome of your fate because there are a lot of personal choices that you have to make for yourself in your practice. The methodology allows you to become like Abhinavagupta, but it's not guaranteed. But we know for sure that if you learn to perform tantric sexuality with continence, with brahmacharya, then definitely you will be an excellent lover. And that's very pragmatical and immediate. In six months, you can become a man who impresses 99% of the women in bed because you are, you know, that's what people want to hear. That's what people need in the beginning. People in the beginning don't know who Abhinavagupta is. And the doctrines of monism in Kashmiri Shaivism, that all is one, are insane scary, and they can be easily misunderstood. That's why, take it all with a pinch of salt, it's a sample of some higher things which happen in Agama. We won't do this too often. And it's a sample of the higher things which happen in Agama, just to show that if you reach a very advanced levels of practice, then you will be able to understand, to fathom things like the ones which I am reading tonight, tonight in particular from the one Abhinavagupta, from the great one Abhinavagupta. Uh, therefore, uh, you will see that most of the things which I refer to here they come from a philosophy which is monistic. When I teach about monism in the Kashmiri Shaivism intro, I ask people, one, to not speak to anybody else about monism. Now I'm just going to put it on camera for the whole world. So how well will it be understood? Only God knows. I am asking people to open a field of understanding on Ajna and Sahasrara, which I'm opening for them for six or seven days so that they will have the intuition, the spiritual intuition, that's what it's called by many Shaivistic authors, in kind of understanding, even if logically you cannot understand, at least intuitively, with your spiritual heart, you can somehow understand these formidable 
terrible truths. That's why the god of these Shaivas is called Bhairava. Bhairava is the most frightening form of Shiva, precisely because when you get to such level of the truth, it is akin to madness, it is akin to insanity. Like if you understand this and you live it out, you are almost not of this world anymore. And again, most of the students out there who want to come and learn yoga, they don't want to be out of this world, except if one or two in a hundred are suicidal, and they think that yoga can help them to finish the misery of this life and go to nirvana, which is partly true, of course. We had students in yoga who said, I came to Agama thinking I will do this yoga course and then I will commit suicide. Not one. Several people came and told me years later that their original intention was to learn a bit of yoga and then commit suicide. Of course, they never did commit suicide afterwards because they understood some of the great mysteries of the universe, but not from Kashmiri Shaivas, from level one. So for most people, we need to open you up to understandings which are close to level one, the Tantra workshops in satsangs, not to Abhinava Gupta. I'm glad that I can do a bit of Abhinava Gupta with you. I hope it will not scare you off. And um, it will give you at least a sample of the fact that yoga is definitely not about only activating your chakras, healing some diseases, energizing yourself. And all those things are there and much, much more. But, of course, at the higher end of the spectrum, we are talking about things which are formidable and which for the regular beginner, they are almost unimaginable. The doctrine of monism is one such teaching, which many people here in the hall, they have done at one time or another. Some of them have done it twice, three times, five times, the Kashmiri Shaivas intro workshop, which is a six-day powerful experience. And because of that, they know what I'm talking and they expect to hear the things which I'm going to share with you from Abhinava Gupta. Not everybody is at that level. And because of that, again, I felt it, I meditated, and I felt it's like an act of grace that we sometimes can quote Shankaracharya, that sometimes we can quote Milarepa, and why not sometimes we can quote Abhinava Gupta, and we receive a lot of light from these luminaries, we receive a lot of light from these giants, although sometimes for some people it may be way above their heads. And many people after listening to a satsang like this, they will say, I live in wherever, Switzerland or whatever their country is. In the daily life, I'm doing, I don't know what. I'm an English language teacher for kids. What the fuck can I do with this Bhairavastava of Abhinava Gupta? It's like broken out of heaven and hitting you over the head. So... Keep it in mind that, again, even if you don't understand it, it's a sample. And it's a sample of monism. Monism starts from a principle which many people speak about, 
but 99.9% of them, they don't understand it and they don't apply it the least in the world. And the principle is, of course, the fact that in this universe, everything is consciousness. The number one principle of this universe, the zero tattva of this universe, is Chaitanya or Anuttara Paramashiva, the supreme consciousness, the ultimate consciousness, and that in the end, actually, everything is one. It's very beautiful to say we are all one, everything is one. For most people, it's just ridiculous nonsense when you bring it to the facts, to the daily facts, because people cannot apply that in their daily lives. If everything would be one for you, then you should have bone cancer, not take opium or morphine, whatever they give you, and be happy with the sensations from your bone cancer, considering them ananda or joy. Maybe Ramakrishna was able to do that 150 years ago. For the rest of the people, we're talking about pure utopia. And therefore, we know that it's one thing to repeat like a parrot, everything is one, the universe is one. But in fact, as soon as somebody kicks you hard, the first reaction is, oh, 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 if everything is one, why do you complain? No, if everything is one, there's nothing to complain. So, uh, there's a huge difference between theory and practice at this level. Because the fact that everything is one is a result of the consciousness of the crown chakra alone. Because the crown chakra is the only chakra in the whole system which presents no polarity. There is no yin and yang at the level of sahasrara, of the crown. And because of that, there people are enjoying a unified state of consciousness and energy in which Shiva is united with Shakti, and therefore everything is one, into the most real meaning. But explaining this to a regular person who lives in a world of frustration and needs and desires and everything else, is definitely not possible in this evening. I would start now to explain to all of you guys uh, monism, when I do that in the Kashmiri Shaivism intro, takes me like three hours to explain that. So I won't even start. And even when I explain it for three hours, it doesn't mean that people understand it from the first shot. And uh, then when they understand, we are talking about a theoretically polite, intellectual understanding where you say well yeah this guy is too much insisting on this story perhaps it's right i would assume that at least he believes fanatically in it so it must be you know i don't know if i can reach there or if i can do that so telling you these things bear these things in mind because abhinavagupta is arguably the greatest tantric master which acted in India, in its long history, at least in the one which we know for the last three, four, five thousand years, from the Vedic India until today, 
and he was not understood sometimes by his own disciples. His accomplishment of the states of Samadhi and oneness was out of this world. Because of this, Abhinavagupta is the only man in history who was proclaimed as being an avatar of one aspect of Shiva, not of the whole Shiva consciousness, of Adishesha, the snake of Shiva, that snake which goes around the neck, or anyhow, there is a form of Shiva which is called the abysmal snake, the snake of the depths from which the Naga Babas in India get inspired. And nobody else did get that fame, and he was the only person in 2,000 years who received the title of the chief, like the pope, if you want, the bishop of all the schools of Tantra of India. All the schools of Tantra of India, they had a pope, a bishop, for just 30 years, around the year 1000, and that one was Abhinavagupta. Before him, there was nobody who raised to this proeminence. After he passed away, there was nobody who could sit in his shoes, who could stand in his shoes, and therefore neither before nor after Abhinavagupta has there ever been one so exalted in the metaphysical knowledge of Tantra. That's why listening to Abhinavagupta, you are listening to the top of the top. And again, even if today it is above your level of understanding, take it only as a promise of the goods to come. We can tell you that if you will study Kashmiri Shaivis Minagama, you will learn the nuts and bolts of this one. And if you will reach to do the fourth level of practice that we have here, which we call briefly advanced teachings, the fourth and the last of the stages of teaching that we have here in Agama, then you will get filled up with that, because when you get to the highest levels of teachings of Agama, that's at least 75% of what we are talking about. All the rest may be a lot of other esoteric secrets from Svara Yoga and from the Yantra Chintamani and from whatever, which are very important and relevant, but uh, spiritually speaking, there is nothing which goes above or beyond such teachings. So, uh, therefore, the people who really love this kind of things, I'm, I'm going to say it in a ridiculous way, it's almost like sometimes they stay with Agama just to be able to reach this level and to participate in these teachings because this is the creme de la creme, the top of the top, and there are not many places, not at all many places in this world where you can talk about such things and get such teachings. Well, the great man Abhinavagupta, he got enlightened somewhere around the year 991 or 2 AD, a little bit before the year 1000 by the Western calculations, and he lived until the year 1030, 40. I forgot exactly the timeline. We have it quite clearly. It's a scholarly thing determined by scholars. It's, there's no secret about that. And in this time, 
in those 40 years of enlightenment, he made great progress as a guru. In the moment when he became enlightened, he felt that now he could teach because he knew what he was talking about. He had seen it with his own eyes and he knew how to go there again and therefore he could show you how to go there again. Of course, we take into account the fact that he was an amazing genius. He was a great yogi and an amazing genius. And whatever was easy for him was not so easy for everybody else. But nevertheless, he could teach. And some people benefited from his teachings. And they received the fruits of the teaching. So, as he did that, he wrote approximately ten poems. The first one written in 992, which is called Bhairavastava, and which I'm going to address today because that one is the easiest. And the last one written in 1030 or whichever was the year, I can't remember right now, it's not important for the sake of this lecture, which was like the last poem which he composed. Everybody who studies the Alpha and the Omega, the number one and the number ten, can see that Apinavagupta, in those two poems, he speaks from a very different position. In the poem number one, he speaks like a rookie, which has just discovered God, and who is full of the drunkenness of, oh my God, you know, it's like I have stepped into the light. And in the last one, he is a great master. I would not say bored, but he is like so weathered by what he has done for a lifetime that he takes a lot of things for granted. He speaks from the position of one for whom these things are obvious and for whom a lifetime of meditation has made a lot of things clear because... The mind progresses. The spirit can never progress because the spirit is Paramatman, Paramashiva, and that cannot progress. It has no waxing and no, no waning. But the mind, which goes together with the spirit in the same body, the mind learns a lot of things from these experiences. So, in Bhairavastava, which means hymn to Bhairava, a poem of worship to Bhairava, he just expresses almost like a bhakti yogi. He expresses like, oh my God, I found Bhairava and so amazing and I want you to know about this. And he is so enthusiastic. He even makes a consecration in the end that whoever will listen to this poem will get a blessing and will lose their fear of death and a lot of other negativities. And therefore, basically, he recommends that you should read it every day. We are having the Mahashivaratri coming up in 20 days or less. You could take a small tapasya of yourself to find this Bhairavastava. We can make it available. Our administration can easily make available my files to you. And then you can just read it. Every morning you wake up, start your day with the Bhairavastava just to see what effect it has if you do it for 
the next 18 days, 19 days, or whatever is. There are people in the school who even suggested that there will be a tapas for everybody, a group tapas, and it will be posted sooner or later, probably by Sunday, so that some of you who wish to just try, be part of it. You can use this Bhairavastava because Abhinava Gupta treats it almost like a magic text. It's almost like the Tibetan Book of the Dead. If you read it, it will have effect, like a mantra. It will bless you just because you read it, whatever you understand from it. And because of that, I want to explain it for those who will take this tapas to celebrate the Mahashivaratri, to honor Shiva in the Mahashivaratri. And this being the first poem of Abhinava Gupta, as he just opened his eyes, of course, theoretically, he knew the tenets of Kashmiri Shaivism, but it's one thing to know it intellectually, and it's another thing to taste it. And you will see that he expresses this thing, that he knows that there is a slippery part of the mind and everything, and at the same time, now he is happy that he can take refuge in his beloved Bhairava. He didn't call it Shivastava, he didn't call it Rudrastava, he didn't call it Ishvarastava, he didn't call it Ardhanarishvarastava, he didn't call it many other names, Mahadevastava or something. He called it by the name which was most dear to his tradition, Bhairava itself, although Bhairava is a very rough name of Shiva, because it reflects to the fact that when you see Shiva in what it truly is, your first reaction is that you shit in your pants, because it's like awesome, frightening. It's like God is so big that the whole thing is just frightening. And I'm going to take it strophe by strophe. I'll tell you sometimes some of the funny words which he uses in Sanskrit for designating some of the things. And in the first, he uses the name of Bhairava directly. And he's saying, being in my mind one with you. I have seen a translation done by some Romanian yogis who, because they are Latinos, they always want to give an emotional twist to the Indian mysticism. Well, Kashmiri Shaivism can be emotional, but Abhinava Gupta is very metaphysical. And uh, when you will see this Romanian translation, I've seen it, I searched for Bhairava Stava, and I found a copy of that somewhere on the net. Uh, it says, being in my heart one with you. Actually, Abhinava Gupta does not use the heart. He says he does not want to just transform it into simple bhakti yoga from Anahata Chakra. He says, being in my mind one with you. Lillian Silborn, who is a great, great translation, translator, she says in French, d'une pensée identique à toi, with a thinking that is identical to you. In English, you would almost say being on the same page with you, being on the same wavelength with you. So when he says, being in my mind one with you, it means a complete resonance, being one with you, because the mind is everything. The mind goes from the 
physical body and etherical body. And as you know, in the laws of the mind, via the subconscious mind and the superconscious mind, the mind goes all the way to Atman. So the mind means a lot of things. It's a spectrum. And he says, being in my mind, one with you. I worship, he says, in my heart. And actually, this story with the heart is very slippery because Kashmiri Shaivism uses the word heart not as the heart chakra, but actually the most simple expression of the word heart, if you'll ever join a Kashmiri Shaivism, is the spine. The spine, the Sushumna Nadi, is called Kridaya. It's the lowest understanding of the word Kridaya. But Sushumna Nadi goes from Muladhara to Sahasrara. It has nothing to do with the heart chakra. That's why, be, be warned about the fact that he, when he says, I worship in my heart, it means with all my being, with all with the Kundalini, because Kundalini moves in Sushumna Nadi. So he says, I worship with Bhavana, Bhairava, the Supreme Lord, with Bhavana means with emotion, with goosebumps, with excitement, with feeling, with emotion again. So being in my mind one with you, then I still worship in my heart Bhairava, the Supreme Lord. And then he gives two verses of an infinite beauty where he simply speaks about God. Who is this Bhairava? Who is this Shiva? There is an equal, equal in another way, but there is a beautiful paragraph in St. Peter of Damascus, a Christian saint from the 7th or 8th century, who writes a small text in his, he writes different Christian texts to inspire the younger monks, and one of them is called the knowledge of God. And then he starts a sentence where he says, but God is not like that. God is. And then he uses some 25 to 30 words. Each one of them is giving you goosebumps that you feel you are going to faint because he says something about God and it's so true and so completely unfathomable that the only thing which you can do is like to listen with emotion. Here, Abhinava Gupta wants you to have goosebumps. He wants you to cry. He wants you to feel, to remember who Shiva is. And in case ever in your life you had devotion and you had love for Shiva, remember it's that Shiva that he is talking. And he says, I worship in my heart Bhairava, the Supreme Lord, who pervades anything or being. This is the all-pervasion, Sarva Vyapti, that means being everywhere. As Abhinava Gupta says it, Shiva is even in a jar, a jar, a drinking jar, a mug, if you prefer, or in the blue, the color blue, if you paint something in blue, in everything, you cannot conceive it. These are the favorite two words which Abhinava Gupta used all his life, a jar or blue. That was his way of saying everything, everywhere. No, he doesn't use that word here, but he says, who pervades anything or being, movable or unmovable, it doesn't matter. You say, yeah, but uh, 
I don't know. Something is immovable. I don't even tell you what, you know. Allah is immovable, just to provoke the Islamic reticence on it, you know. He says, it's Shiva. Everything or everybody, movable or immovable, in the end it's the consciousness of God. Whatever definition you want to give to everything in this universe, movable or immovable, anything or being, it's the Supreme Lord who pervades this thing. Like water in a sponge, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Made of consciousness. He said with this everything. Who is Bhairava? Bhairava is made of consciousness. The nature of Bhairava is not mind, not fire, not water, no energy, no prana, no tattvas, no gunas, no nothing. The nature of Bhairava is that he is made of consciousness. Ultimately, you find consciousness and we are all that consciousness. One, one. Whenever the Jewish mystics say, the Lord thy God is one. Yes, hallelujah to that. It's perfectly true. Whenever the Christians say, the Father in heaven is just one, thou shalt have no other gods. Hallelujah to that as well. It's true. Whenever the Islamic people say, Allah is just one. Perfectly true. Perfectly true. No, Because whenever you choose to speak about the ultimate consciousness, it cannot be two. There cannot be two. There is no place for two things on the tip of a pyramid. The tip of a pyramid is one mathematical point, which is the end and finality of everything. And there cannot be two. Infinite. That's what Shankara said. What can I say about Brahman? Only that it is without end. They, Ramakrishna said, no word has ever soiled Brahman, the Supreme Consciousness. He calls it Brahman because they do it from the standpoint of Vedanta. He says, no word has soiled Brahman, except of the fact that you can say it's infinite, which is not saying something. It's saying a negative thing. It's saying what it isn't. It isn't finite. But what exactly means that something is infinite? We have only an abstract connection to that. We cannot feel it. Vigyana Bhairava Tantra, a fundamental text of Kashmiri Shaivism, demonstrates that if you focus on the infinite, your mind breaks in pieces like fireworks. It cracks. And then you go like crazy. You go in Sabadi because you cannot think about the infinite. The mind is not infinite. The mind is prana, and therefore it is measurable. So one infinite without origin, there was nothing or nobody before God. There is no time, there is no past, present and future, and therefore there is no origin. To think about who created God is an absolute nonsense made by people who think about it with a mind just trying to create difficult questions. It's not a difficult question. It's an idiotic, useless question 
because it has no meaning what was before and what will be after. There's no before and after. And then he concludes in the fifth verse of this wonderful introductory strophe, he concludes with a verse, a saying, which is amazing. He says, Bhairava, the Supreme Lord, who pervades anything or being, movable or immovable, made of consciousness, one, infinite, without origin. And then he says a big thing. He says, refuge of those that have no Lord. This is an amazing opening of the Kashmiri Shaivistic tradition because referring to God, which he worships, then doesn't he have a Lord? Yes and no. Because this Lord, this so-called Lord, is his own consciousness. It's the infinite ocean of consciousness of the universe. And therefore, it's not a Lord. Everybody who lost any concept of God and says, I cannot cope with this part of God, I cannot cope with that part of God, be at ease. There is Bhairava, who is the refuge of those that have no Lord. Because there is no Lord in the meaning of being enslaved. It's the complete doctrine of freedom which gives you the freedom which is almost scary, definitely scary. I wanted to use the word blasphemous in which you can say, I am that. I am God. Then if you are God, who is your Lord? You are the Lord and you are the Lord of the Lord. You are your own God. And then in such a powerful teaching, this thing that I have a God can be practiced as bhakti yoga with devotion, but in the end, Abhinavagupta puts it very beautifully. He says, you without origin, the refuge of those who have no Lord. And of course, he still continues worshipping, adoring, venerating this Lord because he speaks from the standpoint of a young bhakta who is still in awe before this reality. Strophe number two. He says, thanks to your grace, O great Lord. And he uses here the word Mahesha when he says, O great Lord. Maha Isha, the great Isha, the great Lord. So, thanks to your grace, O Mahesha, this entire universe appears now as being one with you. That's a great grace. It's because he is in Samadhi while he writes this, or he was in Samadhi just five minutes before writing this. Only a person at that level of consciousness can say the entire universe appears now, not not a year ago, now, as being one with you. But when you go on the road and your big toe hits a rock, 
and you fall down and your big toe gets swollen or broken, then suddenly you are unable to see that the whole universe is being one with Shiva. Your big toe, which is Bhairava, has kicked onto a rock, which is Bhairava, and now you are cursing and hopping on one leg and being in pain, and maybe you have to go to the hospital and put your toe in plaster for six weeks. No? And how was it that the whole universe is one with you? That's just a grace. Only when you open completely can you see that. That is the truth. But then why do we complain that, I don't know, the people from the Spanish Inquisition thought that some women are doing witchcraft and they are not respecting Jesus and the church much enough, and then they put them on a pile of wood and they burn them to death. Where's the problem if the whole universe is one with you? Like, there is no problem. That's why I'm saying, can any one of you live and think in a monistic way? It's not. Everything is one with you. The fire, the wood, the men, the women, the religion, the teachings, the verdict, the punishment, the social order which they were trying to preserve or whatever the heck was in their minds and so on. No, we judge them. Today, there are not many people who would not pass some judgment on the Spanish Inquisition from a thousand years ago. Even the Catholic Church is condemning it, either out of political correctness or because they changed their opinion in the last two, three hundred years. But to just say that everything is one with you, the entire universe, this is just parrot speaking. How can you can say that then Hitler was God and then Mao Zedong and Genghis Khan were God? And the people who nagged you, you, the listeners of this, the people who gave most pain to you in the last five years, your so-called enemies, the people who are a pain in your ass, they are one with God, they are God, and you can just smile and relax and accept that this is coming from God. No, this is coming from Walter, who is a the demonic asshole and whom I detest sincerely. No, where is that the whole universe is one with you? No way. If an asteroid comes to hit the planet Earth, like in Don't Look Up, you know, that asteroid is God. It's welcome. It's awaited to come. It's predicted in the book of Revelation of John that actually such a thing will happen not long time from now. No? And it's like that's God, then why do we send nuclear missiles to nuke it out of existence if it's God? How can we say people cannot see? People have this mentality that the universe is your enemy, that you have to struggle with Mother Nature and conquer Mother Nature. But Gupta says, thanks to your grace, now, in my state of consciousness, this entire universe appears as being one with you. Can you go and live in the society when you have this kind of consciousness? I don't think so. 
He says it very clearly in verse number 4. You are forever my very self. That's the secret which no, everybody can understand intellectually. People who hear it first time, they can't even accept it intellectually because it sounds as rubbish, nonsense. And only when you have felt it, when you have been in that state of consciousness for 20 minutes, then when you come out of it, you say, bless me, that was true. Oh my God. No? Because then you know that it was not just words. So he says, thanks to your grace, one, this entire universe being one with you, you are forever my very self, like the universe is everything, is united with God. I am God, the God is myself, my supreme consciousness, and therefore... The entire reality is for me one with myself. The friend of my friend is my friend. It's a syllogism from Greek logics. If I am one with God and God is everything in the universe, then I am one with everything in the universe. Then in the moment when you knock your big toe on a rock, this has a completely different meaning. Because I am one with the universe. And everything which happens, happens inside me. Of course you can say it's all an illusion and I'm in a bubble. Like in the philosophy of Leibniz, that everything is just a movie, a maya, which goes around you. But it doesn't matter what words you put on it. But to be able to live this, he says it very clearly from the beginning. Thanks to your grace. So he got that grace to see it, to feel it, to experience it. In you, O God, you, my own self, he calls Shiva here Natha, like Adinat, the Shiva, the first Lord. So he says, In you, O Adinat, O Nat, O God, you, my own self, he uses words in Sanskrit which are svatmani, like my Atman, my own Atman. So he insists. It's like it's so difficult to swallow that he repeats it two times, three times, maybe thinking that people will not understand, maybe thinking like he has to convince himself because he is a bit new at this. And he says, in you, O God, you who are my own self, no, like I had to say it just to refresh, you who pervade the entire manifestation, he says it again, you who are everywhere, everything and everywhere, the fear in front of samsara, in those centuries, in the centuries 5, 6, 7, 8, up till 12 and so on, Many Indian mystics were still very much, it was the century of Ashoka, of King Ashoka, Emperor Ashoka, whatever he was, and India was still reaping a lot of benefit from the Buddhist teachings, although they were slowing, slowly, slowly abandoning of the Buddhist teachings. 
one of the heritages of that the fact that Buddhism exploded strongly for a few centuries in India, and then the Indians let it go to Burma and Thailand and Sri Lanka and wherever, to Tibet. But the fact that they had it there, one of the things which we find in the yoga literature, especially in Kashmir where they were so close to Tibet, which was already becoming a Buddhist kingdom in the 7th, 8th century, is the use of these two words of Buddha, defining the world not as maya, but as samsara. Samsara, it's the wheel of existence, and the spiritual realization being defined as nirvana. Uh, wait a second, didn't they have, couldn't they say prakriti? Couldn't they say purusha? Couldn't they say paramatman? They could. But these words had become very popular in that time. And even Abhinavagupta uses it. He says there is a word coming from our friend Buddha who describes the world. And he says, in you, you who are everywhere, who pervade the manifestation, the fear in front of samsara has no more reason to be. Like, why would you be afraid of samsara like Buddha was? Like Buddha was kindergarten compared to Abhinavagupta when he was young. Because Buddha was very much afraid of samsara. And he said, run, run, run from the bad wolf samsara and go to nirvana. Which, of course, pedagogically is brilliant. But Abhinavagupta, from his newly acquired state of consciousness says, then what is this fear in front of samsara if God is everything in the universe and I am God? Like this, this, there must be something wrong. In this way, here he defines directly the clear position of the highest tantric traditions of India and Tibet concerning samsara and nirvana. Samsara and nirvana are, I wouldn't call it a white lie, because samsara and nirvana, they do exist as two separate philosophical realities, as prakriti and purusha. But they are not pitched against, they are not pitted, I'm sorry, against each other. They are not enemies, because God is in samsara and God is in nirvana. So where is the opposition? But you say, if I have cancer in my bones and I'm screaming in agony then there is a difference between me having pain or me not having pain. That's perfectly true. And thus, in reality, people see a difference, but he says, when you are in my state, when you have reached that grace, he says, the fear in front of samsara has no more reason to be. This is something which some yogis, even big yogis of the tradition, they needed to be reminded of. When Sri Yukteswar or Lahiri Mahasaya, I think it was Lahiri Mahasaya, the guru of the guru of Yogananda, he was sent a message from Babaji, from the Himalayas, which said, you've got 40 days to live, or 30. First he entered in Samadhi. And then they asked him, why? Why this reaction? You should have said something or done something, but you just closed your eyes and meditated for three hours. He said, because I got afraid. He said, Kui, you cannot get afraid. You are a great yoga master. And he gave the answer, wonderful, a parable, 
which says a bird, which is your Atman, a bird, if it is kept a lifetime inside a cage, which is the body, it gets so used to that cage that when it is set free, it is afraid to fly out first time, although it's a greater freedom and it's a benefit. To die is a blessing for one like Lahiri Mahasaya. But first, he had to go in Samadhi and remind to himself that because his mind panicked. So if Lahiri Mahasaya panicked, then of course anybody who thinks about death has the right to panic and has the right to have some fear in front of samsara. But Abhinava Gupta says the solution to it is when you go in that state, then the fear has no more reason to be. And then he gives a very sobering line. The last line here is in a certain way terrible. Because he says, even if there would still subsist lots of situations that could bring about unbearable pains, delusion and terror. He says, if you are not, even Jesus had unbearable pains, delusion and terror when he was crucified or when he was judged. But he basically says, if you are not in the complete state of consciousness of Shiva, it doesn't mean that if today you saw there is no fear in front of samsara. Yeah, but next month you could still break a bone. And if you break a bone next month, It's going to give you pain and trouble and you will be ridden to bed and you will have to wear a cast made of plaster and other things. It's not going to be nice. And thus, Abhinava Gupta says it wonderfully. To find the divine consciousness clarifies your consciousness, but it does not necessarily sort the karmic problems. Can you sort the karmic problem so you never encounter negative karma? Yes, there are many methods. I have a whole lecture about it where I describe the 10 or 11 methods of managing karma, how to deal with karma. But enlightenment is not about karma. Enlightenment is something which is much above karma. And he says, I'm no longer afraid of samsara, but I'm afraid that if I'm aware that if I do something stupid tomorrow, I can still break my leg. Like Ramakrishna getting a throat cancer. No, It's like, why? It means he was not enlightened. He was very enlightened. But the two things have got nothing with each other. The karmic management and the enlightenment are two very different stories. So, that's a very sobering thing. He says there is no reason to be afraid of samsara, but there could still be a lot of pain. And then he addresses death directly. Most of the time he speaks to Shiva, but in the strophe number four, he addresses death. He calls it Antaka. Anta means the end, the god of the end, the spirit of the end, like Kali, the one which brings things to an end. And he says, O death, Or he could have called it Yamaraja, who is the god of death in classical Hinduism. Or other, he could have called it Mahakala, like in Tibetan Buddhism. Or It doesn't matter. He calls one of the names. They have many names. So, briefly for you, death, which is the ultimate fear. 
In psychology, this is the root of all fears. Most of the psychoses come from the fear of death. And from there, there comes the fear of abandonment, the fear of loneliness, the fear of not having, the fear of not being loved, the fear of this, the fear of that. But first of all, it's the fear of death, the root. O death, do not turn upon me this gaze full of horrible fear. Lillian Silburn, who is one of my favorite translators in Kashmiri Shaivism, she calls it Kuru, an epouvantable Kuru. A horrible fear would be the translation. But actually, the Sanskrit word which is used here is the word. I just want to put my eye on it so it's there. It's the word krodha. And krodha is one of the petals on the chakras and it is anger. So like it's like death hates you, wants to destroy you, is coming with a big club to hit you over your head, to stop your thread of life. He is aware of the fact that people look upon death like some anger of the gods, like some anger of the divine. And of course, from this, the human being generally reacts with fear. So he acknowledges, if I wouldn't have gone to Samadhi, I would have been afraid. So he says, O death, do not turn upon me this gaze full of fear, and I would say anger. It's again the word kuru, in French, which Silborn uses, is a brilliant word which mixes the concept. It's an emotion, a mixed fear, anger. It's a terrible emotion. And he becomes solar. He takes initiative, you know. He, he says, he addresses, there is nothing to be afraid in samsara, although some trouble could still come, but I will handle it. And he says, death, which is the biggest one, don't look upon me with anger and trying to make me afraid. And then he says, Upon me, to whom the adoration and contemplation of God give an unshakable firmness. So basically he says, I'm not going to have a little bit of a spiritual state today and then tomorrow my mother is going to die and I'm going to be petrified and horrified and tormented and in anguish, he says, don't try to get at me, to whom the adoration and contemplation of God give an unshakable firmness. He uses the word which is used by Patanjali to define asanas. Asanas are characterized by firmness. Other yoga gurus like Geranda and so on, they have used a few other words to describe like first, one has to get this firmness. And he simply says, I am so constantly worshipping God that I have an unshakable firmness. Upon me, he goes again in the fourth line, who am identical to the energy of the terrible Bhairava. The energy of the terrible Bhairava is no one else than Bhairavi, he calls it in the poem here, he says, Bhairava Shaktimayo, 
that I have the Maya of the Shakti of Bhairava. I have the form of the Shakti of Bhairava. Why? Because he is born in a body. He is incarnated. And being in Prakriti, he has to be related with Shakti, with the manifestation, with Prakriti. Then he basically says, I am having an unshakable firmness and I am identical to Bhairavi. Like you death, try to scare Bhairavi, see if it works. Because I am one with Bhairavi. I serve Bhairava and Bhairavi. I'm firm and unshakable and I'm one with her. And therefore, he basically addresses the maximum provocation. If he confronted death frontally like this, then what else is to go? What else is there? And he concludes, this was like a spiritual exercise. He was arguing and giving the solution. He was challenging himself and rising above the challenge. So in the shloka number 5, he says, Thus, O God, I forgot which words he uses here for God. Lord, Lord of the worlds is translated. It's a name which is, uh, I'm less, I cannot identify it here. It doesn't matter. Again, the translation is, O God, but it's another name of Shiva, O Lord of the Bhuvanas, of the worlds. Always invoking like a different beautiful aspect of God. Thus, O Shiva, O Bhairava, the deep darkness is chased away by the rays of your consciousness. Like he said, I could be afraid of death. I thought about you and I thought, what the heck, I am unshakable, firm, and I am one with Bhairavi. And suddenly I realized nothing will ever scare me again because I have reached the level of consciousness of God. And he says, thus, O God, the deep darkness, this darkness of the mind, he just takes one sample of it, the darkness of the mind is infinite. There are infinite other vrittis and samskaras that are tormenting us in the mind. Only the people who meditate like Milarepa and like Ramakrishna reach to the level where they can transcend. Even Ramakrishna living in Calcutta, he was getting polluted every day with the samskaras and vrittis of other people. Milarepa, who lived 30 years in a cave, he did not. He managed to get rid of everything. So, the deep darkness, which in this case was symbolized by the fear of death, is chased away by the rays of your consciousness. It's one of the beautiful comparisons in India and in Kashmiri Shaivism, where consciousness is compared to rays of light. Because the only visual analog to Shiva that we have is the sun. The sun is not Shiva. The sun is a second, third hand reflection of Shiva. But the sun is self-effulgent, is the source of light and the source of life and heat in our solar system. Without the sun, we'd be dead extremely quickly. And therefore, 
he compares Shiva, the consciousness of Shiva, to the rays of the sun. Like when light is coming, where is the darkness? Nowhere. If you, in the middle of the darkness, you turn on a powerful source of light, like the sun, the rays of light go 360 degrees all around in all the directions. There is no darkness. And thus, he says, thus, O Shiva, the deep darkness is chased away by the rays of your consciousness. It's a beautiful metaphor. It's a poetic metaphor to compare the divine consciousness with the rays of light. And he says a beautiful, this is a beautiful word, because he says, when you come so close. Cantutap Hosh, Seigneur, says uh, Lillian Silborn, when you come close. It's exactly like with the light. When you come closer, the light is bigger and the darkness hasn't got a chance whatsoever. So, he says, get close to God, and when you come close, the rays of the consciousness of God will chase away the darkness. And then there comes his determination, which is this experience going into his mind. Like now, he has got a samskara out of it, a decision, a way of acting in life. And he says, I will never again be afraid of the action of death, the exterminator, nor of the demonic actions. Glory to you. This is the result. I had this state of consciousness. Will he be able to do it? If he has a state of samadhi every day for the next 10 years, then his mind will be impregnated by this idea. First time when you have a significant state of samadhi and you say, oh my God, I discovered God, I am immortal, I shall never be afraid of death. I promise that tomorrow you will. Because that's just the enthusiasm of the young practitioners. You don't realize that your mind needs to be programmed. It's like you are doing self-suggestion and self-hypnosis. And you say, I shall not be afraid of death. I shall not be afraid. Okay, you don't do it like this, but we don't go there. It's wrong to put it in the negative, but let's put it for the sake of the poem. No, I shall never be afraid of death. Of course, if you repeat it a million times and you hypnotize yourself that you shall not be afraid, then when the challenge is coming, you will not be afraid. But don't think that it happens just because you had one breakthrough. One of the mistakes of people is to think that if you have a spiritual experience, you are transformed for the rest of the life. There were people who had interesting states of consciousness by taking LSD, like Timothy Leary, and he died like an asshole. He was an horrible, horrible person, but he said that he would like to put LSD in the drinking water of America so the whole of United States should have a state of samadhi simultaneously. 300 million people in the same day, at the same hour, drink that water and go to samadhi and then there will be heaven on earth and the kingdom of God on earth. With all due respect, that's the bullshit of an idiot. 
Because a simple proverb says you can't make spring with one flower. Just the fact that somebody had an insightful experience, even in this not okay way with chemical substances or drugs, which Patanjali writes that it's possible. No, he knows that it's possible. It doesn't mean that somebody has become Abhinava Gupta. It doesn't mean that somebody has reached permanent enlightenment. It doesn't, it doesn't mean a lot of things which the people that use drugs and psychedelics, they lie to themselves all the time about it because they think that if they are having 10 uh, wonderful experiences, then that will make them happy for the rest of their lives. Usually, it's as Swami Vivekananda of India says, people go to the church and they sing psalms, they have an exalted experience on Sunday, like today I really love God, then they come home and the biggest cases of demonism, possession, darkness, materialism, domestic violence and other such things, they happen statistically in those days when people really did go to church, not today. In those days, they happened Sunday afternoon. Like after people felt wonderful in the church, they came home and they had the opposite. They had the valley, the compensation. They had a little hill on Sunday morning and a little valley on Sunday afternoon. That's why here what Abhinava Gupta says, it's wonderful because you have to think about it. How many times will he, when he says, I will never again be afraid of the action of death, the exterminator, nor of the demonic actions. Glory to you, glory to God, glory to Shiva, because you gave me this vision. It's wonderful, but at the same time you have to take it with a pinch of salt, because otherwise you are practicing an unrealistic spirituality, where you think that a little trick, which will make your brain stop for 20 minutes, has already already ensured you the path to immortality and the path to permanent nirvana. Far, far from that. And he continues his praise, he just started praising, he said, glory to you, and he goes by saying, for you are why you glory to you? Why? For you are the reality of all things. You are the shining of true knowledge which has been shown to the world. That means it's an experience which is possible. It's a shining of true knowledge, the real jnana, the jnana of Shiva, not the scientific knowledge, not the objective knowledge, the supreme knowledge, and the shining of this true knowledge has been shown to the world. Exactly like the Buddhists said in the early Buddhist tradition, if Gautama Buddha has done it, then we can do it also. Because he has done it, now it's possible for us to do it. Like Buddha, for some people, for some cultures, is like an icebreaker. He broke the ice and he gave a gift which is possible from that moment on. From the standpoint of Buddhism, Buddha is the icebreaker. From the standpoint of Christianity, Christ is the icebreaker, because each one of them brought something very new. 
and I, so you are the shining of the true knowledge, and I have received perfect peace in you, my true self. Again, he needs to remind, like, to whom are you talking, Abhinavagupta? I'm talking to you who are my true self. Like, if you were not there, I wouldn't have a self. But because I have a self, you are there, you are here, you are present, and that's the essence of everything. That's the essence of monism. So, as you can see, he brings the same theme. I, what did he get by knowing Shiva? Not being afraid of the demons and death and uh, everything. Says, and I have received perfect peace in you. It's the obsession of the Indian spirituality. Om Shanti Shanti Shantihi. That when you do spirituality, what do you want? You want peace. Not the peace of the world. Jesus said, come and take peace. And he said, but my peace is not the peace which is practiced by people out there. Doesn't mean military peace, social peace, um, even non-violence and so on. Not at all. No, He said, I, I came to bring a sword. And the brother will hate another brother and the father will betray his son for my sake. Like terrible, terrible, terrible. What peace is in that? It's the peace that although all those abominable things do happen, inside we are at peace. It's difficult to say a tsunami came in Malaysia and killed 200,000 people and I am at peace about it. But that's the reality. From the standpoint of Abhinavagupta and Shankara and Milarepa, it's not because they don't care, but it's because they see that everything is God, everything is interrelated, everything is interconnected, and because of this everything makes sense in a higher way, although people might hate it and not see it that way. And therefore, he says, I have received perfect peace. I am at peace. Shanti, shanti, shantihi. And some people say, I don't want peace. It means you are full of desires, you are full of rajas guna, and actually you don't want to reach nirvana. You have a chili up your ass, and you want to agitate, to wriggle in samsara, like a tormented bird. So go ahead, continue exploring samsara, until after another 5,000 lifetimes, you will be so fed up, and so bored with what's happening here, that you will say, Swami Vivekananda Sarasvati, in the year 2022, he was right. Actually, what every soul wants to reach, is rest, repose, zero, the void, nirvana. I want to reach peace. Give me the peace. Everything else is agitation. Everything else is vrittis. Can I have a million years of peace, please? Just a little extended holiday in the void. Then I can come and uh, do karma yoga for the baboons on this planet. You know, I can do it. But I know 
that in the center of my quest and everybody's quest is Shanti, Shanti, Shantihi. This is in so many traditions I could quote, but I want to finish the poem tonight, so I will go to finish it. I have received perfect peace in you, but not outside me. In you, my true self, being fulfilled by the pure nectar of all things. The initiative of Abhinava Gupta is clearly oriented towards Bhava Samadhi, towards Unmilana Samadhi, towards Sahaja Samadhi, because he always mentions the universe. Patanjali doesn't mention the universe. He says, if you manage to reach Nirvikalpa Samadhi, you will reach a state of consciousness that I can call Kaivalya. And Kaivalya means insulation, isolation. You go into a bubble where you are in Nirvana and the rest of the universe can go and fuck itself as much as it wants. It's an illusion. It should disappear. We don't care about it. He wants this Shanti for himself. Just. But in Tantra, you cannot have it only for yourself because you can say, I am Shiva. But then there is the problem that Shiva is Shakti and therefore Shiva is the whole universe. And how can I obtain my peace while the source of my consciousness, the paradigm of my consciousness, is involved in every atom and in every elementary particle out in that universe? Therefore, you cannot forget the universe. From the beginning, you are given the task that whatever peace you achieve, it has to be taking into account the universe. So it runs from the very beginning towards a universal samadhi, manifested samadhi. And how does he say it? He says, I have received perfect peace in you, my true self, being fulfilled by the pure nectar of all things. The Buddhists say in the center of every object and every reality, there is the Buddha nature, there is the void. Well, the Kashmirians don't like this Buddhist nihilism in this way. They think that their doctrine can go higher and they call it the pure nectar of all things. What's nectar? Soma or Amrita. That means everything is God and therefore everything is Ananda. Everything is bliss. Everything is happy. Everything is pleasant. Everything is made by the very hand, so to speak, of God. And therefore he says, I have reached peace, being fulfilled by the pure nectar of all things. Like he managed to have the vision of the fact that all things are made of pure nectar, because all things are made of Shiva and Shakti. And thus, it's not only an internal thing, it's also externalized. And he gives an example which shows that it happens. You are going to see that in the last poem, if we ever get to comment it, either in Kashmiri Shaivis workshops or here in a satsang, he doesn't have... He doesn't need to ping and pong. Like, oh, deaths don't come to me because I am with Bhairava and so on and thus I have reached peace and so on. And now he comes again. He says, oh God, when the state of impurity, again, there is a 
word there as well, which he uses for God. Again, Natha, the O Lord. When the state of impurity, which brings about great suffering, enters into my field of thought, like he says, hey, it happens. I reached Samadhi yesterday and this morning. And then this night I read something or somebody kicked me in the shins. And then I was displeased. I was pissed off. I had a state of impurity. I didn't see the oneness. I didn't see God. I didn't see myself as united. I got out of that state. Maybe for five seconds. But I did. And says when the state of impurity which brings about great suffering, that's the source of samsara, that's the source of the karma in the world. When this state of impurity, impurity means not to be one. Oh yeah, but this happened now, this person deserves justice. Uh, It's not yours. It's not yours to think that. Let God act. Except again in some special situations of karma yoga, but that's another, he doesn't speak about that here. So the state of impurity, which means to act in a divisive way, divided in your spirit, which brings about great suffering, that's the source of the karma, enters into my field of thought. By this he is very honest. He says, from time to time, I am polluted. I myself, Apinava Gupta, I sometimes get shitty thoughts or emotions or whatever it is. But he says, when this happens... At the same instant emerges of me, like a kundalini, like a reaction of revolt, you know, like, this is not acceptable. No, and there emerges of me the flow of the supreme nectar, which celebrates the glory of your oneness. So basically, when I go into duality, something in me goes, remember. And then my kundalini rises to sahasrara, And I have a few moments of oneness. And I'm saying, sorry, just samskaras of the mind, just vasanas, you know. It's normal to, you know. Again, later, he had less of this. But being a young practitioner, he reached the threshold. He crossed the threshold. But he knows that things are not over. When such impurity is coming, he has to go like... A volcano is erupting from my muladhara, and I'm like, what? It's unacceptable. What did you say? This is, but isn't everything God? Am I not God? <sighs> and then I'm back to oneness, you know, like forget about the whole nonsense. Just defeating the nonsense with the states of samadhi. Whenever the shit is coming, go to samadhi. That's what basically he says. At the same instant emerges of me the flow of supreme nectar. It's Kundalini going up, touches Soma Chakra, and it's the Soma, the immortality and everything. Emerges of me the flow of supreme nectar, which celebrates the glory of your oneness. That's the supreme glory. The supreme glory is that there is only one God, and everything is one with God. There cannot be anything separate from that. The last... Two strophes are beautiful. I know many people who have learned the, learned the last one by heart, just repeating it as a sort of a mantra for Shiva. 
the last but one says, concludes. And he says, O Shiva. He calls him actually here Shankara. So you would say, O Shankara, one another name of Shiva. O Shankara, even if it is true that fasting, rituals, purifying baths like Kumbamela, charity like karma yoga and other forms of generosity and charity, and asceticism, which means tapasya, yeah, you have here some of those words. He uses some, I can find tapo and uh, like tapasya, but for others, he uses words which are alternatives in Sanskrit, not maybe all the words which you know. So, he says, even if it's true, that fasting, ritual, kumbamela baths, charity, asceticism, and others break the torments of existence. They break the torments of... What are the torments of existence? Negative karma. It means they address the pain. So if you want to address the pain, you have to do fasting, rituals, purifying bath, charity, tapas, That's how you deal with it. Again, enlightenment is not a solution for karma. It's a solution for not caring about karma anymore, going beyond it. But it's not a method of burning karma. Karma is burned on Ajna Chakra, not on Sahasrara. By programming the mind, by working with the samskaras of the mind. So he says, he doesn't deny, he says, it's true, I know it from India. Everybody around me is doing fasting, rituals, baths, pilgrimages, charity, asceticism. And this, it's true, it breaks the torments of existence. It can lighten your life. That's why we recommend it all the time. Do practice those things. They do break the torments of existence. Nevertheless, although that's true... He says, that's not what I'm interested in. There is a level which is higher than that. And he says, although these fasting and so on, they break the torments of existence, the ecstatic focus upon your revelation makes flow in my heart a river of felicity, a river of beatitude, a river of happiness. If I remember correctly, he even uses the word Ananda. So, he says, although we have other things from yoga to break the torments of existence and other things in spirituality, the ecstatic focus on your revelation. What's the revelation of Shiva in Kashmiri Shaivism? Aham. I am that. I am Shiva. I am the cosmic consciousness. That's the revelation. That's the true revelation. So he says, the ecstatic focus upon your revelation, focusing on the highest truth, that makes flow in my heart a river of happiness. Like That's where the real happiness is, not just removing the torments of existence. It's smart to remove the torments of existence. But if you want the ananda, if you want the bliss of God, then one has to focus on, he says, ecstatic focus upon your revelation. Let's just see what words are there. 
She has in she says in French l'heureux souci de ta révélation, so longing for being being in bhavana about your revelation. So connecting here in English it was translated. I prefer to translate it as ecstatic focus, like focus with emotion, focus with bhavana, focus with feeling upon this revelation makes flow in my heart a river of felicity. And he concludes by saying something which is wonderful, and I told you some people, under one form or another, they want to memorize this trophy. It's like it's so beautiful. He says the last thing to Shiva in, his, in this hymn of praise. He says, O Lord Bhairava, he uses here Bhairava Natha, Natha, the Lord, and Bhairava, Lord Bhairava. O Lord Bhairava, this consciousness of mine sings, dances, and rejoices deeply because as soon as it grasps you, the most beloved, the sacrifice of oneness and undifferentiation, otherwise so hard for the others, is accomplished. If you didn't get this one, you got nothing. This one is the magic of the universe. This one is the presence of Shiva. He says, if my soul has not found you, it's not complete. It's not finished yet. This consciousness of mine, which is the consciousness of Shiva, because there is only one consciousness, sings, dances. He was a great aesthetician, so when he says sings and dances, think about the most Vishuddha chakra, exquisite, artistic and aesthetic thing. The dance of the soul for God. This consciousness of mine sings, dances and rejoices deeply. Because as soon as it grasps you, if you don't grasp Shiva, you miss the point in that life. The most beloved, the sacrifice of oneness and undifferentiation, it's a sacrifice. The sacrifice like in Chinamasta, it's a magic. Like everything is coming from oneness and undifferentiation. But it's like the supreme sacrifice is the supreme puja, if you want, to find that. So then, the sacrifice of oneness and undifferentiation, otherwise so hard for the others, like people who don't practice Kashmiri Shaivism, how will they find oneness and undifferentiation where their religion is constantly teaching them that they are separate from their God and that they have to bow down to their God as the slave bows down to the master. As you can see, Abhinavagupta is not arrogant. He's very humble. He's very happy to worship Shiva and praise him, say, you the highest, you the one, you the undifferentiated, by your grace, O Lord, glory be to you. He is no short of praises for God, while at the same time he knows that at the top of the whole process there is discovering, transcending, and finding this oneness 
and undifferentiation. And he says, the sacrifice of oneness and undifferentiation, otherwise so hard for the others, there is a little bit of that in Vedanta, there is a little bit of that in some non-dualistic forms of Tibetan Tantra. There are some traditions in India which tend to be almost non-dualistic. None of them compares with Trika. None of them compares with the Kashmiri Shaivas. And therefore, he says, the sacrifice, this finding the oneness, which is so hard for the others, is accomplished. All you need is to grasp Shiva. As soon as it grasps you, the sacrifice of oneness is accomplished. There is no need for more. This is the ultimate state of consciousness, this oneness. There cannot be something even logically, mathematically, metaphysically. There is nothing which can go beyond that. So, O Lord Bhairava, this consciousness of mind sings, dances and rejoices deeply. That's a wonderful attitude to have to God, to be joy, not to be afraid of God, not to be bargaining with God, not to be, my consciousness dances, sings, rejoices deeply, because it's the simple way of acquiring oneness and the final strophe which is not the poem it's like a colophon is incredible because this one is not part of the poem but it gives to this poem the blessing the magic power which it has and it sounds so dull and so dumb it's like some scholar who wants to make it clear what happened that's not the point it's right between the lines there he says, Abhinava Gupta has composed this hymn in the tenth day of the dark fortnight of the Pausha month in the year 68, 992 if you want the European years. A hymn, now it comes. He says, I composed this in this day. I finished this. I composed this hymn because I am drunk with Samadhi and I had to express this. A hymn, through which the omnipresent God, which is Shiva, Bhairava, always, the omnipresent God, alleviates immediately, through His grace, the torments of existence and death of man. So he says, just read this poet, read this poem, and it will immediately, uh, what about tomorrow? Read it again. Every time when you go into some shit, Read, call for Shiva, call for Abhinavagupta to give you a drop of the nectar of all things, as he said it. A hymn, he promises it, he says that's what this is. A hymn through which the omnipresent God, Bhairava, alleviates immediately through his grace, so it's a grace, it's not karma or anything, it's a grace, alleviates immediately, he uses the word immediately, through his grace, the torments of existence and death of man. Existence, the torments of existence, and the torments of death, which are what makes our life sometimes so miserable. 
With this, the nine strophes of this hymn of Abhinavagupta are concluded. See, this is the law of three for those of you who know that teaching for it. He made a final awareness. He made a final blessing. It was not enough to think about it. It was not enough to compose it. He had to make a conclusion, even saying with this, the nine strophes of this hymn of Abhinavagupta are concluded. Like some magicians clap their hands and say, now I declare this temple of magic duly closed. There is a moment which is like the law of three. There has to be a conclusion which is very divine. This colophon, this final strophe, is as beautiful as the strophes of the poem themselves because they reveal the key. And the key is with this Bhairava eases immediately through grace, the torments of existence and death. This is great poetry. I did not read poetry when I was a teenager. Not to mention that I never wrote poetry when I was a teenager. I was a nerd and a geek, and I thought that poetry was an absolute waste of time and resources, And people say, well, you were not romantic and you were a technical brain, a left brain hemisphere or whatever people were. No, I've never been there. When I read Milarepa, later when I read Abhinavagupta, later when I read Rumi, and others of the same caliber, there are very few who are of the same caliber, but still there is the poetry of Omar Khayyam, and others of the kind, then I saw that poetry can express states of consciousness, a flavor which logical discourse cannot, can never do it. And that's why I admire such poetry. I'm always for such poetry. And in India and Tibet, They always had this, we don't practice it in Agama and in Europe generally, exception made our people who sing bhajans and sometimes they compose bhajans, kirtans, because in many of the schools of India and Tibet, they consider that when your sahasrara is open, this will have the effect of an amazing eloquence. Like you could not uh, beat Shankaracharya in eloquence. No, because Shankaracharya will always have a higher argument and a higher argument and a higher argument and he will always be on top of everything. That's why the great masters were unbeatable in terms of discourse, in terms of teachings, because they, it came directly from Sahasrara. You don't need to learn things by heart. They just come to you. It's like the consciousness highlights them. They are somewhere there on the background. And the consciousness shows you what to say next. I, you know very well that more often than not, I don't prepare anything about my lectures and I talk freely. Because I'm trying to go in that state of creativity where things are coming. And in India and in Tibet, 
they consider that the people who reach such states of consciousness, if they want to, they could manifest a high sense of poetry. Poetry didn't mean for them what it means today. That you have some guys who are, I don't know, let's, let's be nice, sexual weirdos. I was about to say perverts, but then people will get. Sexual twisted people, and they are big French poets, and they smoke, and they drink, and they live a life of misery. You know, and then everybody says, but this poet is really big. Not according to Abhinavagupta. According to Abhinavagupta, those people had some talent with the words on Vishuddha. They could make the words fall in a cadence and create a hypnotic rhythm of the sentences and words, but it doesn't go to the end. It doesn't go to the maximum. Edgar Allan Poe describes in one of his novels how he was not sleeping for three days in a row, walking on the streets, repeating his name, doing all sorts of other things, just to fall into that state of creativity. And then he was composing the famous poems. Well, when you read Edgar Allan Poe, you will see that he does not compare to Rumi. There is a one-class difference between the greatest poets of the materialistic world and the poets who have united their creativity with the divine consciousness, like Milarepa, like Abhinava Gupta, like Laleshvari, like Utpaladeva, like uh, Shankara, and many others that I mentioned already. So that's why there was a tradition that, hey, you got to Samadhi, express it beautifully on paper, say what you felt. And that's why Milarepa wrote no less than 100,000 verses. And even in the 20th century, Yogananda felt obliged to write a couple of poems about the state of Samadhi. Swami Shivananda wrote some poems in his books about the state of Samadhi. Sri Aurobindo wrote whole volumes of poetry inspired by this. So there you have the poetry inspired by the divine consciousness. And um, there is a tradition. So Abhinavagupta is part of this tradition that to express his enlightenment, he wrote 10, maybe more, and we don't know them. They are lost maybe. But we know that he wrote at least 10 great poems, out of which tonight you heard the first one, in which he basically says, Hooray, I made it. I found Shiva Bhairava. Rumi says the same in one poem, which is probably written at the same moment in his life. He says, today I found you. And those who were not looking in the same direction where I was looking, like in the direction of God, now they are sorry. No, like until today, I was a loser. But today I found you. And now it's a whole different ball game. So, this is the beauty of the spiritual poetry. Vishuddha, in the case of uh, Abhinavagupta, there is a great metaphysical knowledge on Ajna, which he displays very easily. He doesn't try to impress that he knows metaphysics, but you can see that he moves through metaphysical and philosophical concepts like it's nothing. 
they are at his little finger. Sahasrara, because he constantly aims to the oneness and to the supreme consciousness. And I would say that I feel a lot of Anahata, because he is from Kashmir, he has this Indian spirit, Bhakti is there, and he sometimes says, uh, O Lord, O Shiva, when my consciousness sees you, the most beloved. Oh, it's about love? Yes, there is Bhakti there also. Not only that it's oneness, but it's the most beloved as well. So, you had a sample tonight, maybe again a little bit much for some of you, of the poetry of Abhinava Gupta, trying to explain it verse by verse, strophe by strophe. Now when you'll read it next, again it's possible to get the text of this, there's no problem. When you'll read it next, you will um, see that you understand it in a different way. And if this satsang will be available online or something, you will be able to listen to it and to interpret such a poem in its true value. What the author wanted to say from that state of consciousness. With this, I think we should conclude for tonight. It's a bit late. Thank you all for uh, suggesting me to go in such a beautiful energy, in such a beautiful resonance as this one. And we, we shall see if we'll have other opportunities to analyze more poetry from Laleshwari, from Abhinava Gupta, why not even from Rumi, from Meister Eckhart, and from other great, great enlightened poets. Enough for tonight. See you in the next activities of Agama.